It's becoming clearer and clearer to people that the problem of sexual harassment is a problem that corporate fiduciaries need to be responding to and need to be thinking about. What we do think both Title VII and corporate insecurities law can do is raise the penalty for corporate fiduciaries who commit sexual harassment or aid and abet it at their firms, and also focus attention on ways to potentially manage sexual harassment risk. Welcome to Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm Chris Hurley. And I'm Megan Kogashal. We're both online editors with the University of Chicago Law Review. Today we're discussing the increasingly important intersection of the Me Too movement and corporate governance. We spoke to two scholars, Daniel Hemmel, an assistant professor at the University of Chicago Law School, and Dorothy Lund, an assistant professor at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. Professors Hemmel and Lund wrote a forthcoming paper in the Columbia Law Review titled Sexual Harassment and Corporate Law. To start, we asked Professor Lund to briefly summarize the findings of their paper. We essentially took a look at the Me Too movement and its impact on shareholders and companies, which have gotten some attention, but we thought maybe not enough. In the wake of Me Too, we saw a lot of executives leaving their posts. We saw uh, big stock price declines at companies. And what we also noticed was an uptick in litigation from shareholders challenging the ways that companies and corporate fiduciaries reacted to scandals and how they controlled the risk of sexual harassment at their companies. And so we explore that uptick in litigation and when we think it will be successful and when it hasn't been successful in the past. And then we kind of conclude by talking about some of the normative considerations about should corporate law be used in this way and how do we think of this as a potential tool for remedying and responding to the problem of sexual harassment at the workplace. Have people brought these types of claims in the past? While corporate governance suits and sort of shareholder derivative suits have been used in the past to address other types of what some might call social issues like the environment, their increased use with regards to sexual harassment and sort of really harmful workplace environments has been a relatively recent phenomenon, much like the Me Too movement generally. Professor Lund elaborated on the growing visibility of these lawsuits. Almost every securities lawsuit and fiduciary duty suit that was brought, there were EEOC charges and sexual harassment lawsuits filed by victims that preceded those lawsuits. So these things are happening concurrently. Why are these shareholder suits getting all this attention now? And what does that say? I think we're at a really interesting time where a lot of norms are changing. How do these lawsuits typically function? Often, a shareholder will look at a company that has made a recent revelation detailing allegations of misconduct from multiple sources against a very high-level executive, especially if the board knew about these issues and these problems and never disclosed it to the investors. The investors have a very strong claim. Professor Lund explained how these suits typically function. There's a lot of different roads and paths forward. We think of different categories of claims, go after the fiduciary who's actually engaging in harassment, the fiduciary who's failed in their monitoring duties, the fiduciary who's enabling sexual harassment to happen. The hurdle for plaintiffs is first establishing that the board was either not disinterested and independent, couldn't evaluate whether or not to allow the claim to go forward, or whether or not they were likely to have been guilty of some fiduciary duty breach themselves. And if the plaintiff can do that, they can bring the suit. And then, you know, you get into the substantive inquiry, which is, 
in some ways more straightforward. If you have a CEO who's engaging in sexual harassment, that's a clear breach of fiduciary duty. However, you characterize that as a breach of the duty of loyalty, duty of due care. And you can also get at the board for their failure to conduct oversight, which is known as the care mark claim. The last thing I'll say is that because most corporations have a 102B7 charter provision, which exculpates through actors from breaches of the duty of care, plaintiffs are going to be better off framing the violation as a breach of the duty of loyalty and care mark. So do plaintiffs usually bring claims based on federal law or state law? For these types of suits, the ordinary basis lies in state corporate law, which will almost always be Delaware, because every company is typically incorporated in Delaware for what a lot of companies see as a favorable business environment. But some suits actually originate in federal securities law as well. Professor Hemmel had this to say. I'd be reluctant to make a claim that every sexual harassment charge against a top-level executive will rise to the materiality level. And in a federal securities law where materiality is the relevant standard, that relevant standard is judged against the statements that the company made in advance. So it's possible that the company said nothing about sexual harassment in advance. There's no obligation to disclose all material information. You just can't say false things or misleading things. But we can see by stock price plummets that, yeah, this was material to CBS. Les Moonves' departure led to hundreds of millions of dollars in shareholder value loss. This use of corporate law to challenge sex discrimination is somewhat novel. Professor Hemmel spoke about how shareholder derivative suits compare to more traditional paths of challenging this kind of sex discrimination in the workplace. First, quantitatively, there are far more Title VII claims than there are shareholder derivative actions arising out of sexual harassment. The latter is a new phenomenon. The former is not. Second, there are limits on recovery under Title VII that don't apply to shareholder derivative actions and to securities fraud suits. So it's impossible to recover more than $300,000 in compensatory damages under Title VII. There are strict rules about administrative exhaustion and statutes of limitations. In some states, it's possible to get around that under state human rights law. But in other states, Title VII is simply undercompensatory. And third, and I think this is the most important point, Title VII and corporate slash securities law are remedying different harms from sexual harassment. Title VII is remedying only partially the harm to the employee from sex-based discrimination. It does nothing for the shareholder who is harmed by the breach of fiduciary duty or by the company's failure to disclose or disclosure of materially misleading information. So Title VII does nothing for those shareholders. Have there been any notable effects of this kind of litigation? What we have seen is a rise in what are sometimes called Weinstein representations or Me Too clauses in merger contracts. So company A is buying company B. Company A's lawyers might insert into the contract a clause that says company B represents that we know of no sexual harassment claim against anyone at the senior VP level or up. Or we know of no such claim except for all the claims that we've disclosed on a schedule that we've attached to this contract. I think that is reflection of the fact that sexual harassment leads to potential corporate and securities law liability. So the acquirer doesn't want to be on the hook. But beyond that, beyond the legal liability for sexual harassment, sexual harassment can be damaging to a brand. 
So if you're buying a company largely for the goodwill attached to that company, you want to be sure that there's not going to be a Wall Street Journal A1 story tomorrow about sexual harassment on the CEO's corporate jet. And if I were to make a prediction, I would say we will see relatively few of these cases litigated to final judgment favorable to the plaintiffs because it is so much better for the defendants to settle and get this out of the news because the damage from sexual harassment is not just the potential liability on top of, of course, the human damage. But you just don't want Bloomberg, Business Week, Wall Street Journal stories with sexual harassment and your company's name cropping up every day. So what have been the results of these cases? So lawsuits like the ones we've been talking about have claimed some really big victories over the past year. We can look at CBS or 21st Century Fox. A lot of the big names in media have started to really come down. But many of these cases are still pending. Here's Professor Lund. Right now, most of the post-MeToo cases are still pending. We don't know what the result is going to be. But we have one case that settled, and that was the lawsuit against the state of Roger Ailes of Fox News and the board of directors of 21st Century Fox. In that settlement, the company paid $90 million in attorney's fees, but they also established Workplace and Inclusion Council as part of the settlement. So we think that the fact that 21st Century Fox chose not to contest those claims and instead settled suggest to us that these claims might have been successful had we gotten to the end point of the litigation. Maybe we'll see more and more of these lawsuits leading to victories and results for companies and for shareholders. So lawsuits like the ones we've been talking about have claimed some really big victories over the past year. We can look at CBS or 21st Century Fox. A lot of the big names in media have started to really come down. But many of these cases are still pending. Corporate governance does not seem like the first place that a lot of us would think to go in order to start advancing certain sort of social policies or goals. And yet we're seeing it increasingly used for political movements, whether it's about boycotting businesses that do business in certain countries, or there's been a lot of shareholder activism about the environment. And we're just seeing the corporate vehicle being used to advance these sorts of social policies in ways that have really not been done that much before. Professor Hemmel spoke about his theories for why there is this increasing trend. I think if one is trying to fit sexual harassment and corporate law within the broad sweep of history, one way of doing this would be to say we have corporations that are more powerful than corporations have been at any time since maybe the Dutch East India Company. We have, for the first time, a company whose market capitalization has exceeded $1 trillion. At the same time, we have a hollowing out of governmental institutions and gridlock in Washington. So for those who want to affect social change, the corporate world looks like a much more useful tool than the political world. And there are complicated implications of that. On the one hand, it is easier to get Apple to change its policy on arbitration of sexual harassment claims than it is to pass legislation through Congress. On the other hand, it is easier only for some people, only for people who have access to capital and to corporate power. So corporate democracy has de-democratizing effects because it removes some segments of society from the conversation. 
I think it might be a mistake to tell the story of sexual harassment and corporate law solely as a story about individuals and institutions that want to change social norms and see corporations as the best way to affect that change. I think sexual harassment and corporate law can also fit into a story about investors trying to maximize shareholder value, being really angry when their stock prices fall from 200 to 110, recognizing that sexual harassment is a risk to the bottom line, just like chemical spills are a risk to the bottom line. So when you see shareholders or boards take action against CEOs of a chemical company after a toxic waste spill that leads to millions of dollars in liability and reputational damage for the company, maybe it's because they care about the environment. Maybe they don't care about the environment at all, and what they want to do is make a profit. Did it strike you as odd when you were reviewing this that we're using corporate governance and sort of the vehicle of the corporate form to fight an issue like sexual harassment? Yeah, I mean, it seems like this could be a point for criticism because one risk as a result of using corporate governance and shareholder suits to challenge sexual discrimination or sexual harassment in the workplace is that it views these issues as problems related to money or just sort of commodifying sexual harassment rather than trying to focus on the harm that it does to individuals and particularly women. Professors Hemel and Lund addressed these concerns in their paper. I think we have a few responses. One is that this is just maybe a reminder that doing any of this with corporate law is going to be a complement to rather than a substitute for legal protections designed to compensate victims. We would never say that this is the only or the best way to address this problem. I think we instead would say something like, this is a, such a severe and pervasive problem that we're going to need to go at it from multiple policy angles. In terms of just like the discursive framing problem, the fact that we might be taken as implying that shareholders are the true victims here, we hope that instead the, this litigation and, and focus on shareholders would be interpreted in a different way, that successful companies are ones that make it possible for all of their employees to thrive and that directors and officers that have allowed sexual harassment to occur have really failed in a big way. But again, we do take that concern seriously and acknowledge that it's a problem. This is Professor Hemmel. One understanding of sexual harassment is as the commodification of women in the workplace. And some who were sort of at the genesis of the legal idea of sexual harassment in the 1970s and 1980s might look at this with horror. It's the ultimate commodification of women. We frame sexual harassment as harm not to the employee, and I should say the employee could be male or female here, but as harm to the owners of capital. As strange as it feels to see shareholder suits and sort of shareholder votes addressing these problems, I feel, and I'm sure many people feel, that it's nice to see some movement on these issues. When you look at state houses, and particularly Congress at this point, um, how little action there's being done there on these very, very pressing problems that are captivating the news. And yet there's been almost nothing more than cosmetic changes to the law that have been aimed to address these problems. This is a fascinating time. We're seeing investors really wanting to make social goals and environmental goals a big priority. I attribute this largely to the influence of large institutional investors that have taken vocal positions. 
Famously, Larry Fink said last year in a letter that he wrote to all CEOs that he expects companies to have a social purpose and, you know, serve society in some way, which is pretty powerful coming from BlackRock, which is one of the largest shareholders of every company in the S&P 500 and beyond. Litigation is certainly not the only way that this is happening that shareholder proposals are being used for environmental and social goals. And we haven't seen a lot of this in this sexual harassment space, but we think that that could be the next frontier. Last year, the pension fund CalPERS was weighing whether or not to urge all of their companies that they invest with to disclose any payments made to settle allegations of sexual harassment against executives. And you can imagine other types of, you know, shareholder proposals or topics that shareholders could engage with companies on, you know, asking them to no longer acquire arbitration for sexual harassment or refuse insurance or indemnification for sexual harassment claims against corporate executives. There are a lot of opportunities here, and it's an exciting time where shareholders are thinking about these things. So we hope that they will continue to think about them and flex their muscles in this area. Corporate law is socially constructed and socially constructive. What counts as a harm to the corporation is different in 2018 after the rise of Me Too than it was even just in 2016. This would have been a surprising conversation to have 24 months ago. In that sense, corporate law is socially constructed and the corporation and its interests are socially constructed. We think, we hope that corporate law can be socially constructive, that corporate law decisions can affect social norms and trickle down from the C-suite to lower levels at the company and trickle out beyond the company. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Thank you to David Sandifer for producing this episode. Follow us on Twitter at UshiLRev. Articles from the Law Review are available on the web at lawreview.uchicago.edu. You can find more episodes of Briefly on our blog at lawreviewblog.uchicago.edu and soundcloud.com slash Thank you so much for listening.